Hey, well, good news. Spring's coming. I know. That means so many good things, doesn't it? You got the green grass. You got the green trees. You got the flowers popping out saying, hello. Told you I'd come back. Told you I'd be here, right? Faithfulness of God every spring, right? You know, it's the faithfulness of God every winter, too. You know that? Hold on to that thought. With, with every spring comes the inevitable storm, right? The storm comes every spring. Seems like the news makes a lot bigger deal about weather than they used to, doesn't it? Oh, my. We just know too much, don't we? <laughs> But a storm comes, and the National Weather Service occasionally puts out a, some kind of a warning. Severe thunderstorm warning coming. Run for cover. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're right. <clears throat> I think the craziest people on the earth must be those storm chasers. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's both a fascinating and, a, and, and, and like an off-putting thing for me to think that somebody's going to get in a Ford Explorer with an iPhone and chase down one of these storms, right, and get as close to it as you can to get a picture of the tornado. We've got an I-4 I or a T, E-4? What is it? E-F-4? Are you a storm chaser, Pat? You are a storm chaser? I think you are out of your mind. <laughs> but we knew that, <laughs> right? Another group of people who amaze me are the storm praisers. And by that I mean the people I have met in their lives where they have learned how to praise God in the midst of severe storm. You know who I'm talking about? Can you bring somebody to mind? People who have learned how to praise God in the midst of whatever storm they find themselves in. It's been my pleasure as a pastor to know a lot of people over the years. And I've seen a lot of people go through storms. Some of them have just responded with this kind of praise God in the midst of it. And today I'd like to talk with you about praising God in the midst of the storm. We're in this 20 days of praise, focusing on the power of praise. And we're seeing God release more and more power among us. In this 20 days of praise. Special gatherings. Next Sunday night, of course, we'll have our baptism service that will be a great celebration and a time of praise to God. That's next Sunday night at 6. Every Tuesday night at 8, as we continue with our normal weekly gathering back in a couple of those rooms back there, I've just been focusing, started to focus on praise. Last week I gave a, a brief teaching on praise and focusing on God in praise. And I've got a couple more brief teachings that I plan to bring the next two Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. And then then we practice it. And it's really a powerful time of the release of God's presence and his power among us. And I'm getting reports back from people in the church that stuff's happening. It's like, Tom, I prayed this and it happened. And I'm even seeing in in my own ministry and my caring for the people of the church, seeing more noticeable results, immediate results in the praying for people. So it's, it's a great time in our church, just 20 days of praise and seeing that God responds to our praise by the release of his power. So I want to talk with you about praising God in the midst of the storm. And for the passage, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 9. Now, 
The context of this passage that I'm about to share with you is that it was, it was written by Peter. He has two books, First and Second Peter. Both of those books are attributed to the Peter who was the disciple earlier in the New Testament, became an apostle. He had that kind of up-and-down life, Peter. At one point, he looks at Jesus and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A little bit later on, he says, I, I don't know, I, don't even, I never knew him. He had that kind of a life. He had a kind of a life where once he heard Jesus say, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. And then a little later on, he heard Jesus say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's kind of an up and down relationship with the Lord, wouldn't you say? Can you relate? Can you relate to the extremes of relationship with the Lord in your own life? And yet Peter kept coming back, he kept coming back, he kept coming back, and God fulfilled his prophecy that he would be the rock upon which the church was built. Well, by the time this first Peter is written, there's many years after all of this, it's probably like 64 to 70 A.D., so it's 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The reason we think this is because the nature of this book is that it's written to Christians who are suffering serious persecution. And historically what happened in 64 AD is Nero came to power in Rome and he was pretty much against everybody. And so he persecuted the Jews, he persecuted the Christians just relentlessly and mercilessly. And so the destruction of the temple came in in 70 AD. And it was probably in this time that Peter wrote this. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I want you to see, if you read 1 Peter and you see the wisdom and the depth of this, of this apostle now, I want you to see what 30 years of walking with Jesus can do for you and how you can change. You can change. Did you know that? You can change. Just keep walking with Jesus. The text that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Peter 1, 3-9 is referred to in Jewish literature as a baraka. A baraka, which is a Hebrew word that means Praise. And so this text was referred to as a baraka. It's like a song. It's like a song in the midst of the letter. Baraka, does that sound familiar at all? Remember last week, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when we saw how Jehoshaphat responded to the, the coalition that had joined with the Moabites to come in and attack them, and they met them, and, and Jehoshaphat sent out the singers first to praise God as this overpowering enemy was coming toward them and God turned these different forces on one another so that the Israelites uh, were spared yes you remember this do you remember what they called the valley in which this happened the valley of Baraka the valley of Baraka so it became kind of a fight song if you will but not in the da 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 way But in the, no, we can sing this song, we can connect with God, and God will go before us. So this this has a lot of similarities to one of those things. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9, says this. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And he goes on to say, though you do not see him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. What an incredible passage of Scripture. What an incredible thing to hide in our hearts. This passage of Scripture, clearly to me, is one of the most essential teachings on the subject of praise in all the Bible. In all the Bible, this is one of the most essential teachings on the subject of praise. But I think it is one of the least treated and most underappreciated of them all. I was thinking recently as I was ramping up to bring this word to you, I don't think I have ever heard anyone preach or teach on this passage. I've been around a while. I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach or teach on this passage. And I reflected a lot and prayed about why that was so, Lord. And it was just this morning, early, as I was out on the wall, that the Lord gave me an insight into it. The reason this passage is seldom treated in the church today is because it flies in the face of our culture of comfort and the American dream. Because so much of Christianity today seems to be just trying to support our prejudices about how comfortable and prosperous we should be, whether we're prosperity people or not, quote-unquote. So much of our faith just seems to be pointed toward how can I become more comfortable? How can I become more prosperous? And so we can float from church to church to church doing what Paul said. He said, looking for someone to say what our itching ears are longing to hear. And what this passage says is that God is as faithful in bringing the winter as he is in bringing the spring. And we must praise God, we must learn to praise God in the midst of the storm and be as grateful in the storm as we are in the sunshine. And so we encounter this passage today as, I think, kind of a hidden treasure. And uh, part of the treasure is that this passage gives us revelation into the purpose of our trials. Verses 6 and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice. You rejoice. In general, you're a rejoicing believer now. He talked about you've received Christ. In this you greatly rejoice. And then he says, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Can you relate? Hello? It just seems like something the church doesn't really want to talk about. It seems like if God is a God of love, shouldn't he lift up the trial off of us? But then it goes on. It says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved what? Genuine. It genuinizes our faith. It authenticates our faith. And may result in what? Praise, glory, and honor 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. What a contrast. What a contrast this is from the Old Testament. The teaching of the Old Testament is clear. That when you're in a trial, it's because you messed up. The teaching of the Old Testament is simply this. That when you're in trial, God is punishing you for your disobedience. And it was true. But what about, what happened? Jesus came and he gave himself on a cross to to receive our punishment. To take my punishment. So something changed on Calvary. Something changed on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of the Father for us. You get that, right? You got to get that. Otherwise, when you experience trial, you'll go the wrong way. You'll go, what have I done wrong? Why is God punishing me? And it won't open you up for the opportunity to authenticate your faith that the passage is suggesting. Because the Old Testament says, when you're in a trial, it's a result of your disobedience. The New Testament says, since Jesus took the punishment of our disobedience, when you're in a trial, it's God giving you an opportunity to authenticate your faith, to strengthen your faith. You get that? I mean, who among us has never really asked the question, why would God allow such a thing to happen? Things happen, sometimes to us, often near us, so that we're broken. We're afraid, yes? It's okay. These things happen, and, and every one of us at some point has had to ask the question, why would God, who supposedly loves me, loves us, even allow this to happen? Well, let's do this. Listen, the fact that we have trials is because we live in a fallen world. You know this, right? Maybe not. Maybe this will be new. The fact that we have trials is because we live in a broken condition. We live in a broken circumstance. We're, we're caught in a world of sin. We're caught in a world of sin. We're caught in a world of disease, yes? And we're subject to that. We're subject to that to a point. But we have trials because we live in a fallen world. So the fact that we have them is because of that. But the purpose of God allowing our trials, so why wouldn't God prevent us? Why wouldn't he insulate us from, our, from trials as we live in faith with him? Because the purpose is our opportunity to respond to the trial to make our faith stronger, to make our faith what he calls genuine. Trials are meant to drive us to God. God allows trials in our lives I like to think of it as reducing our faith. Any cookers in the room? You know what I'm talking about? About reducing a reduction. You're cooking. I don't know who your favorite um, TV cooker is, whether it's Gordon Ramsay. He seems angry, doesn't he? He's just an angry man. Somebody needs to tell him about Jesus. Oh, I don't know if it's Julia Childs. There's a voice that can wake the dead right there. But that's okay because Martha Stewart will put you right back to sleep, right? I mean, I was just thinking about it the other day. But I don't know who your favorite cooker is, but you know that somewhere in the program there's going to be, and we're going to put this liquid in here and this other stuff in there, and we're going to boil it for a while because we want to reduce it, right? We want to reduce it. We want some of that liquid to evaporate off, some of that water to evaporate off so that it thickens the concentration of the ingredients in there because it makes it more powerful, doesn't it? Come on, doesn't it make it more powerful? 
Yeah. And that's what our trials are meant to do, to reduce our faith. We come to God with this kind of fledgling faith, don't we? I need you, God. I don't want to go to hell later. Come on, didn't we only have to start out this way? So they say, I got to believe in you. So there, I believe in you. And that's a pretty watery faith, isn't it? Something's got to happen to strengthen that. Something's got to come to dig a deeper well in us. One of the things that comes are trials. Because they're meant to reduce our faith. Reduce our faith. And by that I mean thicken it. And just one book over from this first Peter, you've heard this before maybe. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy. Yes, I got another trial, honey. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And the Bible is so clear that God allows trials in our life to thicken our faith, to make us mature. It doesn't mean we have to like them, right? But some, because joy, as we've said over and over again before, is not necessarily the same as happiness, but it's that deep abiding confidence that God's in control. Consider that pure joy. And trials in our lives, if you notice, can go one of two ways. They can either strengthen our faith or they can shipwreck our faith, right? We've seen this. And that depends on our individual responses to the moment. What do we do? What do we do when the trial comes? You know, maybe we're new to the faith, maybe we're not. But we're walking along and we have this perception of a relationship with God, all of which is true, built on the blood of Jesus, His resurrection, His ascension, all this is true. Maybe we have a few dynamic experiences along the way that encourage us and bolster our faith. And then along comes a trial. Boom. And then it's on. It's like, welcome, welcome to your walk with God. That's part of it. Because God is as faithful in bringing the winter as he is in bringing the spring. How many of you like football? Anybody watching football? I know. Don't you love it when like... Uh, the rookie quarterback steps out there in the NFL. And, you know, they've been really good in college and stuff. And they've taken some licks in college and stuff. But don't you just, it's so sinister to love this. But, you know, they step back and they're ready to pass. And some 10-year veteran comes up on their blind side and just creams them. You know what I'm talking about? And when he's getting up and pushing off him when he gets up, can't you just hear him go, welcome to the NFL, walk away? I mean, can't you, can't you just get that? Right. Well, at that point, that quarterback has a decision to make. What's he going to do? Well, he's either going to, you know, say, I'm not doing this anymore and go away. He's going to stop playing so hard, or he's going to grow a bigger eye over here, right? Is, is that right? <laughs> He's going to yell at this tackle a lot here for not protecting him. But he's going to grow a bigger eye, isn't he? Somehow. Somehow he's going to respond to that with increased vision. It's your choice when the trial comes along. I'm not minimizing the pain of a trial. But I'm saying you're struck with exactly the same choice. The big trial, the small trial. And it's what are you going to do with your hands? You can lift him up to him or you can clench him. You can be angry about it and clench them and perish, or you can lift up your hands to God and praise Him 
The Bible says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is the teaching of the Bible. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. Somebody might look at verse 5 of this text. could be troubling. It says that God you know, loves you, he saved you. In verse 5 it says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Aren't we shielded by God? I mean, doesn't it say right there that we're shielded by God's power? How can we have trials if we're shielded by God's power? Listen, a shield, a shield is meant for someone who's in battle. A shield is someone who understands they're in battle. A shield doesn't necessarily protect you from everything that's going on in the battle it just restricts access to you. It restricts access. Stuff is still coming. Stuff is still coming. It just provides a limited access. And Satan only has a limited access to you. Get this. Satan only has a limited access to you. The access, uh, this access that when responded to in faith will result in a better disciple for God. You have an opportunity. Satan only has limited access. Some of you might be saying, listen, you're saying, yeah, but can't you die in some of those trials? I've seen people face a trial, and they responded, and they died. They died. So how does Satan have limited access? Let me tell you what I think about that. Satan does not have the power to determine when it's time for you to die. Satan has no power to determine when it is your time to die. Did you read the book of Job yet? And did you see how that's all set up? And Satan comes to God and says, I've been looking everywhere for a righteous person to torment. And, and what does God say? Oh, have you checked Job out? Have you read that? I mean, have you seen how that flows? Have you seen Job? Thanks, God. Throw him under the bus. And God says to Satan, you can do whatever you want to him but you can't touch his body. You can't kill him, is what that means. You can't kill him because it is not within Satan's power to determine when it's time for you to die. Never, ever, ever. And uh, a believer will not die in a trial because Satan says, I'm gonna kill you, but only when God says, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. It's time to come home. The Bible says that if we do this, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, when we respond this way in our trials, we're storing up praise. When we respond in faith to our trials, when we lift our hands to God in our trials, praise Him in the midst of the storm, we're storing up praise. It says we'll result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Maybe... Some of you are familiar with the name of a young man who's a pastor in Texas. His name is Matt Chandler. He's written a few books, good books. And he's the pastor of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. It's a four-campus church, about 10,000 people. He's uh, quite an inspiring person. And his story was that he, he actually didn't come to Christ until he was 17 years old, wasn't really raised in the church. And here's how his story goes. He loved football, and he was an active foot. I think everybody in Texas has to play football <laughs> to be a man. Maybe, I don't know, but it's pretty important down there. 
And uh, he said that here's how God reached him. That in high school, he said that as he went and put his, put his stuff in his locker on the first two-a-day, he said that the guy in the, in the locker next to him, who was also his same age, looked at him, and his name was Jeff Faircloth, and he said, he said, Matt, you and I are going to have a talk about Jesus Christ. And he said, I'll let you decide when that's going to be, but we're going to have a talk about Jesus Christ. And he walked away. And eventually they had that talk about Jesus Christ. And Matt Chandler said, said, you know, I wasn't saved at that moment during that conversation, but I was caught. I was intrigued. And then a year later, at 17 years old, he gave his life to Jesus Christ, the Savior. He said everything after that, everything he touched turned to gold. Here he was, he was 28 years old in 2009. He was pastor of a mega church from 17 to 28. And he's, mas- he's a pastor of a mega church in Texas. And on, in 2009, on Thanksgiving Day, he had a seizure and he blacked out. And they took him to the hospital. Two days later, they discovered that he had a brain tumor the size of a golf ball in his brain. Two days after that, they did brain surgery and they removed that. He spent 18 months in chemo and radiation because it was a non-encapsulated tumor. The prognosis was not good. So as he lives and breathes today, as he lives and breathes and serves God and praises God today, here's the part of his story that I really want you to get. He says people will often come up to him and say, man, it's just amazing with this cancer. It's just amazing how good God has been to you to heal you. And he said his answer is this. He said, I appreciate that, but I want you to know that even if I were already dead, left my wife and three children behind, God would have been good to me. God would have been being good to me. That's praising God in the midst of the storm. Now he's believing with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength for his healing, right? Of course he is. Thousands of people around him believing for his healing. But don't you love his perspective? The worst thing that could happen to me today is that I could die and go to heaven. Right? The best thing. Well, there's another thing in this passage I want you to get before we go. And it's, uh, it's called Later and Now. This passage says, says this. It says that you've been saved into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a salvation that's ready. You're enjoying a certain dynamic of your salvation now, but there's a better day coming. There's always a better day coming. There's a day coming. There's a day coming. Well, because of your faith in Christ and what he's done for you, you'll be welcomed into paradise. That's ready to be revealed at the last time. And I I was praying about this this week, and I heard the Lord say this, your room is ready. Your room is ready. Have you ever checked into a hotel and they said, yeah, just not quite yet, we'll let you know. And then you got that word, your room's ready. You go, all right, let's go, honey. Anybody? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Talk to me, church. Well, I got this from the Lord this week to say to those of you whose faith is in Christ, your room's ready. Your room is ready. That's the then. But there's also a now in this passage. He says, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are receiving it. It's happening now you are receiving it i want you to know that that as you walk this out it's not just about later but it's about now 
And I have really good news for you, some of you will really like, and that is that storms pass. Storms pass. And come on, don't you love the feel and the smell of the air just after that storm is done? It's never more clear. It's never more clean. And things are never more perfect, are they? And you sit on your porch, and all the dust is out of the air, and there's just a purity to that moment. Storms pass, beloved. It's not going to last forever. And this, uh, this present storm will pass. So whatever you're in right now, wherever you are, I just want to say praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. You might be looking at me going, that's easy for you to say. You're not in the storm I'm in, and I'll give you that. But I'm not saying it. The word of God is saying it. The word of God is saying praise him in the midst of the storm. So if you have an issue with it, take it up with the word. Get right into the word. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. The Bible says praise him in the midst of the storm. I wonder what power we could see released in our church if we could learn to praise God in the midst of the storm. I wonder what greater power we could see released here among us in this fellowship if we could learn to praise God in the midst of the storm. You know, it's really, I want to leave you with this, it's our privilege, really, to share in a rich heritage of suffering. Did you hear me? It's our privilege to share in a rich heritage of suffering. Right in this first Peter book, remember I told you what they were all going through, and in verse, chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And we, we, we are really on the end of a rich heritage of people who have suffered for Christ. You've got to get this. It escapes us in our culture. But that when Stephen was the first one to be killed for the faith in Acts chapter 6, he went with his arms up. He went, I see the face of God. Praise God, he's going. Praise God. Was he happy about being stoned? Of course not. But he was joyful in the midst of it, and he praised God in the midst of it. History tells us that many Christians, when they were captured by the Romans and were put, sent into the arena to face lions or to face other other soldiers who were going to take them apart, that they would go in singing, that they would go into the arena singing praises to God. Twenty centuries, twenty centuries of history have shown us that there's power in releasing praise in the midst of the storm. If you've never read a good book called Jesus Freaks, read it. Read that book, Jesus Freaks, that just talks about all these people and modern-day martyrs for Christ, people who are giving their life for Christ today in our world. And they're doing it with joy in their hearts. You know, on my first trip to India, I was so puzzled by something that I saw the first time. When I would meet somebody, they would always say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I would see them and say, hi, you know, and you want to stick out your hand and shake their hand and say, hey, how are you doing? They go, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I thought, for, at first I thought this must be kind of the dynamic equivalent of namaste, you know, the... Uh, like the Christianized namaste, you know, instead of going namaste, just go, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And um, it took me a while to get on to what was going on, because then I thought it was just sort of a sort of a custom kind of thing. But I met these people, and when I would see them, and it still happens every, every time, I see them and they go, praise the Lord, I praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And what I finally discovered was that many of these people live out their lives under the very real threat of physical persecution, at least the people I see, the people I meet, that some of them, their very lives are in danger as they live in these little villages and try to be a light for Christ, try to be a witness for Christ. They live with a very real threat of physical danger. 
And many of the people we know there have been hurt by militant groups from other religions who have been threatened by their faith. And so they live in this threat of persecution. So what do they do? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Many of the people I know, many of the people that I know in India are very poor. Not all the people in India are very poor, but many of them that I know are very poor. They're very poor. They live subsistence lives. And when I go to their little village and into their little hut and they put out all this rice and stuff in front of me, treat me like a king. I know they're giving me everything that they have. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. All at the same time. But they live in this subsistence life. So what do they do? Praise the Lord. They say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We live in this rich heritage of people who in the midst of the storm, praise the Lord. So I think it's our privilege this morning that whatever you got going on, whatever you got going on, whatever bad news you're working with, I won't take away from you the fact that we have trials. Whatever you got going on, what do you need to do? You need to praise the Lord. There we go. Let's praise the Lord.